Good morning, everybody. Today is truly a historic day. For seven months, we have realized the greatest public-private partnership in modern times. Doctors, scientists, researchers, factory workers, logisticians, and hundreds more have all come together for a singular purpose. That purpose, save lives and end the pandemic. We checked our egos at the door. We worked collectively to solve the problem, and we have achieved success, as was identified last night by the FDA when they approved EUA of the Pfizer vaccine. Now we'll begin distribution of safe and effective vaccines to the American people. You're listening to General Gustav Perna speaking at a press conference on December 12th. General Perna is a four-star general in the U.S. Army, and he serves as COO of Operation Warp Speed. That's the collaborative effort of federal government agencies and private pharmaceutical companies to create a vaccine for COVID-19. As you just heard this week, General Perna declared, mission accomplished. The end is in sight. Life will return to normal just in time for summer vacation. Wait, wait, why am I hearing the broken car engine, Melissa? Didn't you just say that we've won? I mean, clearly the system worked. The vaccines are here, done. Mission accomplished, right? Oh, Dorian, you know that's not how we do it on this podcast. I mean, a press conference declaring the crisis is over can really mean only one thing for us. Yeah, and it means it's time for a system check of the system for finding a cure. On this episode of System Check, we talk with Greg Gonzalez, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology at Yale University. And we catch up with our friend and colleague, Alondra Nelson, President of the Social Science Research Council. And we get a final word from Lanise Emanuel of the Alabama Institute for Social Justice. I'm Dorian Warren. And I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. And this is System Check. Do you remember talking with Professor Monica McLemore from the University of California, San Francisco, during last week's episode about the system of public health? Yeah. How could I forget, Melissa? <laughs> Listen, I know, right? Well, she's been on my mind because as I've watched all the news about the vaccine this week, I couldn't shake something Professor McLemore said to us last week. I started nursing school in 1988 during another global pandemic. HIV AIDS, we just celebrated World AIDS Day on December 1st, right? And so one of the big lessons that that coming up as a nurse and coming up as a public health person that taught me was that there is this very, very interesting intersection between activism, clinical health services, the scientific community, and public health. This intersection between activism, clinical health services, the scientific community, and public health has been on my mind every time I see a four-star general (laughs) dressed in fatigues discussing the priorities and logistics of vaccine distribution. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand why it makes sense to put a military leader in charge of a massive, multi-step, geographically spread, logistically complicated process 
like mass vaccination. But there's, there's, I don't know, there's just something about the visual, like the signal of a military leader who looks like he's ready to put in some work on the front lines as the face of a public health effort. Like maybe somebody didn't get what the next step in the process is really going to take. Hmm. All right. So you have my attention. Say a little bit more about that, Melissa. Okay. I want to be clear. It's not that I'm not celebrating. I am. I'm celebrating as much as anybody else that we have not just one, but two vaccines that we're starting to distribute them. And we're not even at the end of the year yet. Like everybody else, I want to see my elderly parents without fear. I certainly want to teach my students in person, not on Zoom. Lord knows I need to get my hair done professionally. But more than anything, I just want to stop losing thousands of lives every single day to this brutal disease. But I keep wondering about all the intersections of this pandemic that are disappearing from our public conversation as we're racing towards large-scale vaccination and starting to feel cured. I'm worried we're going to forget the hard lessons coronavirus revealed outside of the ICU in overburdened hospitals. Things like the dangerous environments and inadequate pay of essential workers, the deep inequalities in our K-12 education, the profit motivations consuming higher ed, the precariousness of housing for all but the wealthy, the inadequacy of elder care, the gaping holes in our social safety net, and of course, the deadly consequences of racism. Damn. And yep, I get it. I get it. We, we need to do this critical reframing. And Melissa, the stakes couldn't be higher because, you know, now in this episode, it's, it's not about the vaccines that are being approved by the FDA at a fast clip. We know that those have gone through rigorous testing. We know they're safe and effective. And yes, you should definitely get them when they become available to you. No, what we're talking about today is much broader than any one vaccine, any one medication, any one treatment. Instead, we want to expand the scope of our conversation about this crisis, about what ails us and about what it will take to heal us. And I think in order to address those broader issues, we're going to need to start at that intersection that Professor McLemore identified. Just to simplify it a little bit, let's call it the intersection of science, social science and activism. You know, and having effective vaccines is a miracle at this point. We still don't have an AIDS vaccine, you know, 40 years later. Um, to go from like discovery of a virus to a vaccine or multiple vaccines within less than a year is extraordinary. And if we're going to vaccinate everybody in this country, we're going to have to deal with some of the systemic issues because otherwise you're going to leave the virus untouched in the communities most vulnerable in the U.S., right? Communities of color, rural communities, communities with, in states that have weaker public health infrastructures. And yeah, we could all sort of put all the eggs in the sort of let's get everybody vaccinated basket and sort of brush the sort of historical inequities, the social and economic determinants of health that, that brought us to this moment under the carpet. This is Greg Gonzalez. He is assistant professor of epidemiology and associate professor of law at Yale University, where he serves as co-director of the Global Health Justice Partnership and co-director of the Collaboration for Research Integrity and Transparency. Greg lives and works at the intersection of science, social science, and activism. His advocacy is informed by professional expertise and personal commitment. Greg joined System Check to help us think about the COVID-19 pandemic beyond a clinical perspective. So it's pretty clear that the HIV epidemic, and frankly, all epidemics are man-made phenomena. Infectious diseases are always going to be with us. 
um, but for something to sort of flourish into the AIDS epidemic or the COVID-19 pandemic, you need men and women to make bad decisions to make that happen. And it's pretty clear that in the 1980s, there were a whole set of disposable people who made it okay for Ronald Reagan and Larry Speaks to laugh in the Oval Office about the disease and about none of them being gay and none of them having to worry about catching it. But it was clear that it was about gay men, it was about people who use drugs, it was about sex workers, it was about people of color, it was about immigrants. And um, this is not something that the Reagan administration had front and center in their priorities. Um, but it was pretty clear that we were disposable in the eyes of, of the presidency for in the entire Reagan administration. Epidemics are man-made, not because a cadre of evil scientists concocted a disease to release into the population, but because epidemics are created by human systems. Trace the history of any deadly infectious disease, and you will see it travel along the fault lines of racial, economic, and social oppression and inequality. This is why a vaccine alone, even a safe and effective one, cannot cure a pandemic. Treating and curing this pandemic and preventing the next one requires us to ask, what are the systems that created and sustained the crisis? And Janine Interlandi from the New York Times in the 1619 issue of the magazine wrote a piece about why we didn't have national health care in the United States. And she says it has everything to do with race. And But it talks about how smallpox erupted at the end of the Civil War, along with some other infectious diseases. And the decision to intervene at that time was fraught with ambivalence. The former slaveholders didn't want the labor supply to dwindle through deaths from smallpox, but they also didn't want everybody to survive to create a political opposition to upset post-Civil War politics. And Janine talks about this in her article in the New York Times, but talks about how the exclusion of African Americans from the New Deal, the debates about national health care that ravaged the 20th century, um, were all tied to issues of race. And so this whole arc of sort of America's relationship with race is, is sort of determined our public health systems, our systems of health care. A lot of stuff is tied to our history of race in terms of how we think about public health, health care, and the social safety net. It paved the way for the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, it's not just because Donald Trump is a big fat idiot that we had such a terrible epidemic. It's that the groundwork was paid for it. Our ability to confront the pandemic with any sort of resilience was stymied by the investments we did and didn't make over the past 200 years. And so we've created a whole framework to impoverish people, to make them sicker. And then we rely on sort of tertiary healthcare and sort of our high-tech teaching hospitals like the one here at Yale to rescue the sick and dying with the, the latest technology and medicines we can provide to them. So that's how we ended up on the doorstep of COVID. And this is why people are in such deep pain. Um, you know, lots of countries have social safety nets could have picked people up when they fell through the cracks um, over the past eight months. They subsidized salary. They didn't have to worry about losing their, their health care or their housing. And we, we don't do that here. And it's all sort of you're on your own. You're alone against the virus, as Amy and I talked about. The Amy who Greg just mentioned is Amy Kapinski, his colleague at Yale Law School. Together, they co-authored an article for the Boston Review. The article was published on March 13th of this year. March 13th, that's a full week before the first statewide stay-at-home order was issued in California. March 13th was when plenty of us still thought we could flatten the curve within two weeks or maybe at worst, two months. But Greg and Amy knew better. While most of us were only beginning to barely comprehend what was happening, 
they warned with prescient accuracy, quote, those hardest hit will be the most vulnerable, the elderly and those with chronic diseases, particularly those in nursing homes, crowded homeless shelters and prisons. We have no natural immunity to this new virus and there's no vaccine. It will spread unchecked from human to human and across our social gradients. Unless we create social immunity woven of the ways we interact and care for one another. But what kind of social immunity can we build in a body politic that has been ravaged for decades by neoliberal policies? And during the past nine months, our country has responded to the question, what kind of social immunity can we build in this body politic? With the answer, none. Our social immunity has been entirely inadequate for the task of addressing this pandemic. Above all else, the daily death toll tells that story. The weekly death toll tells that story. The monthly death toll since March tells that story. The total deaths to date tells that story. More than 300,000 people have died of coronavirus in this country since March. 300,000. And Melissa, the number is so large. It's so, it's just, it's, it's incomprehensible. Our minds, our brains literally can't comprehend it. We are rendered numb by figures like these. Somehow it's easier to understand, to, to, to feel, to grieve the 2,400 people killed at Pearl Harbor or the nearly 3,000 who perished on September 11th. It's somehow easier to understand those numbers than to adequately capture what it means to lose that many people every single day. Just listen to this. This is the sound of the morning bell at Washington's National Cathedral. On December 15th, the cathedral tolled the bell 300 times, once for every 1,000 dead. The 300 tolls took a full half an hour. It would take three full weeks, uninterrupted, night and day, to toll the bell for each person who has died from the coronavirus in this country. And of course, it was the 17th century British poet, John Donne, who wrote, Each man's death diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind. Therefore, send not to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. It's also true that the coronavirus bell does not toll equally in all communities. Black and Latino and indigenous communities have shouldered a vastly uneven burden of the COVID infections and deaths. And Melissa, I'm struck particularly by Native Americans um, who have been disproportionately affected by the coronavirus because as of October of this year, the virus had devastated the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians. 
They live in Neshoba County. That's where the tribe members are disproportionately located. So Neshoba County, isn't that Philadelphia, Mississippi, where the mm-hmm. three civil rights workers were murdered in the summer of 1964? Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney. Yep. And it was on that hallowed ground where candidate Ronald Reagan announced his 1980 bid for the presidency, basically signaling states' rights. Mm-hmm. And ushering in an era of neoliberalism, of the devaluing of government. Remember he said, the problem is government, right? That was the launch of our last 40 years. We come to the head, right, of 40 years of disinvestment in our public health system, but also all of our systems. And so to go back to Neshoba County, it's where the Choctaw Indian tribe members are disproportionately located. And they had the highest rate of death per capita in the entire state of Mississippi due to coronavirus. And that's just one of many of the vast racial inequalities that are even more stark if you've moved beyond clinical measures to the, you know, interlocking crises, right? The interlocking Mm -hmm. systems of this pandemic, Melissa. If we look at the racial wealth gap, it has been widening during the pandemic as workers of color lose their jobs. The housing insecurity crisis is deepening, particularly for Black families and Latino families who are more likely to face both eviction and foreclosure. Educational outcomes are becoming more racially disparate as schools that serve students of color have fewer resources to make that pivot to remote schooling. Even if you just cared about vaccination and didn't care about equity one iota, we need to get people vaccinated. We need to reach reach a threshold uh, of people vaccinated against the the virus. Because the way this disease has attacked the United States following the sort of contours and fractures in our social history, it is in communities of color and in poor and undocumented communities. It's just the way it is. And so there's a sort of epidemiological imperative for mass vaccination, which reaches communities of color, but it's going to run into the um, obstacle of our disinvestment in communities of color and in public health uh, and in community health. The idea that we're going to run through a tape like the New York Marathon and say we've, we've finished our race is not how it's going to work. We're going to vaccinate people slowly, but we're going to need to be wearing masks, offering people support to social distance and isolate, you know, whether that's rental assistance or eviction moratoriums or whatever. We're going to need to sort of deal with all these social and economic issues on the way to sort of getting past this virus. And the vaccine alone is going to carry us, you know, a large part of the way sort of biologically. But you're not going to be able to do it without equitable access to vaccines and equitable access to a whole lot more resources that were not equitably distributed before the pandemic. We are not going to run through a tape like the New York Marathon and, and say we've run the race. We're going to have to change some systems. Stick with us. Our conversation with the president of the Social Science Research Council, Alondra Nelson, is up next. want to say I am really enjoying getting to the root causes of the problems facing this country with you, Melissa. Oh, listen, that's always where I want to go, Dorian, right down to the root causes. But uh, look, I'm enjoying it because I feel like we're learning so much from our guests and there are simply no end to the systems that need checking. But I will say this, if we're going to keep doing this work, we are going to need a little help from our listeners. So 
System Checkers, here's what we need you to do. Subscribe to System Check. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts. And for goodness sake, please share our show with your friends because it does make a real difference. And if you're feeling particularly generous, the best way to show your love for this show is to subscribe to The Nation's print and digital magazine at thenation.com slash system check subs, S-U-B-S, system check subs. System check listeners can get 60% off your subscription by going to thenation.com slash system check subs. All one word and subscribing today. Thank you so much for your support. There's a fascinating piece in The Atlantic this week by Ed Yong, How Science Beat the Virus. Now, Yong explains that in the fall of 2019, there were no scientists studying COVID-19 because no one even knew it existed. But once COVID-19 began to spread in the United States, the global scientific community became almost singular in its focus. 2020 began with only a handful of scientific articles about coronaviruses. But the year, the year is ending with more than 74,000 COVID-related scientific publications. Okay, that's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. And Melissa, I was particularly struck by what Young reports about how this research happened, because so many researchers turned their attention toward understanding this disease. And many scientists who have been laboring in relative isolation suddenly had a ton of people to talk to. And apparently... All of science has become more adaptable, it's become more transparent, and yeah, it's become less cloistered as a result of the coronavirus refocus. Okay, it is genuinely strange to think that a crisis that's caused so much physical distance and social isolation in our lives seems to have actually promoted more collaboration in science. But listen, we spent this entire episode saying that the vaccine is not a cure because the pandemic is not just a health crisis. It's an ongoing disaster of inequality. So if science researchers spent this year huddled together, I mean, virtually, of course, in order to find a vaccine, have social scientists come together to work on a cure? What are the ways that social science insights, research, past and present and future can help us to think about the kinds of innovations that communities create and under forms of, of, of stress and disaster and like scale those, you know, how do we amplify and give oxygen to moments in which brief moments in which people said, gosh, you know, we're all in this together, or this is affecting all of us, or this is keeping many of us from not being able to have the holidays that we want to have or the relationships with relatives that we want to have. This is Alondra Nelson president of the Social Science Research Council and the Harold F. Linder Professor in the School of Social Science at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton, New Jersey. How do we take those insights and make them into, you know, social insights and social research that allows us to, to scale them? And when we say at the Social Science Research Council that we want to, you know, mobilize social science for public good, it, it, it means that it's not just supposed to sit in paywalled peer-reviewed journals and books that it's supposed to, there's supposed to be insights that help to transform the world and not, not an ideological sense, like, like just at the sense of like social theory, like what is a, you know, a just and thriving society and how can social science insights for scholars and for others um, help to make that be the case? 
one of the many ways Nelson's Social Science Research Council operationalized this effort to mobilize social science for the public good was launching, moderating, and maintaining the coronavirus syllabus. It is actually, so it's the coronavirus syllabus, and we started it in March, uh, March 12th, actually, to be exact. And it started initially just as a crowdsourced syllabus on Twitter, um, and then it immediately became a, a crowdsourced Google Doc. And it was really sparked by a colleague of ours, Anne Fausto Sterling, who on Twitter, where many great things happen, said, hashtag teach the virus. And uh, at a time when our semesters are collapsing, our classes are collapsing. And, you know, what do you, how do you go back in the classroom and teach? I think offered for us as our, you know, wise, slightly more senior colleagues do, you know, a resource, which is not to say we had been here before because we surely have not, but there are enough things about this moment, even in its early days, that are things that we know about. Some are which for, are from prior viruses, things like HIV AIDS, um, more recent things like H1N1, swine flu, and then some just from, you know, large literatures and arts and letters. So how do we think about what we know and how do we mobilize what we know and how do we help ourselves and our students. And I should say, you know, I, we really endeavored early on to get works that were open access or at least un, ungated in some ways. And so it was not only for scholar, you know, teachers and their and students and colleges and universities, but for anyone who wanted to make sense of it in this moment um, when many of us uh, who were not frontline workers, key workers, um, as they call them in the UK, essential workers, had a little bit more time on our hands to really be, I think, reflecting on what was happening and the world that we wanted to exist after this. Now, the coronavirus syllabus is really just a simple Google Doc. I mean, yeah, there's a useful table of contents with hyperlinks, but there's no fancy template here. But it's fascinating. It's far-reaching. It is so interdisciplinary. You'll find books and articles organized by big theoretical topics like disease stigma and racism or theorizing contagion. There are resources on the 1918 flu, the HIV crisis, Ebola, SARS, yellow fever, and other large-scale epidemics. But it's not just books and articles. You'll find blockbuster Hollywood movies like I Am Legend and World War Z listed right next to independent mini documentaries like Zika, the film. And the playlist is equally diverse, including the Lockdown Blues by the Danish group Ice Age and the New Orleans-based artist D1's Corona Clap. But let's be honest, next to the genome mapping laboratory science of Operation Warp Speed, this modest little crowdsourced Google Doc with offerings as varied as peer-reviewed research, personal narratives, and popular culture can feel anemic and, well, academic. But I think that's true only if we think that the solutions to this pandemic are solely biological and clinical. We will be, I think, for the rest of our lives talking about this moment. But on the kind of science and data piece, I mean, one of the more fascinating things was, you know, novel coronavirus of 2019 emerges and fall 2019. By January of 2020, it had been sequenced. The whole genome had been sequenced, you know, by Chinese researchers. And yet, we we couldn't stop it because it wasn't only about the science, right? So that sequencing of the human genome in January of 2020 allowed people to make a start 
on these new genetic vaccines that are emerging, which are new kinds of, of vaccines. But all of the other things that came with it were in the space of social science, were in the space of social inequality, social issues, and questions about who can work and who can't work, who can wear masks and who can't wear masks, and all of these things, you know, were about so much more than than data. And, you know, it's a lesson that we've learned certainly over the last 10 months and one that I hope never leaves us. We couldn't stop it because the rest of the pandemic is the realm of social science and inequality. If we truly want to cure, we can't lose sight of this realm, what Professor Alondra Nelson calls the ecosystem of the pandemic. If we're talking about the the experience gap that really lies between, for example, in the United States, black and brown communities that are at least 50% likely to know someone who's had COVID-19, and then the rest of the population, you know, the percentage is far less. That means that issues of healthcare access, mistreatment and mainstream medicine, issues about racial inequality and about, you know, the protests against white supremacy and racism that were happening in the summer are all part of the COVID-19 phenomenon, particularly for black and brown communities. And so there is health there, but health, of course, is embedded in this kind of larger ecosystem that's about people's ability to be well and to have access to the things that they need to be well, to thrive and the like. So to say that it's 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 not only about the science is to say, that there's social science issues. So one of the things that I'm personally as a scholar writing about and thinking about is the category of the essential worker, which as we talk about it is, uh, you know, we know it's a category that's deeply racialized, that's deeply classed and has come to be to stand in place for people who no matter what, no matter what's going on at home, no matter what's going on with your own personal health, like you are required by law, by state law, to go to work. And so when you dig deeper into that, so I've been looking at the state of Illinois, one of the things that's interesting is that, you know, in March, the Trump administration basically invites states to create essential worker laws. And if you look at a place like the state of Illinois, Essential workers are, you know, people who run grocery stores and who work at hospitals, but it's also the entire financial services industry, right? It is people who run marijuana dispensaries. I mean, there is actually within the the legal category of essential worker, this huge inequality gap. And so I think that it's not only that it's disproportionately, you know, thinking about why it's not only the science, disproportionately black and brown people who are working in this category. It's also that there are people in this category who don't have to bear any of the risk. So in the way that we think about inequality, not just being who's at the bottom, but who's getting more at the top, like that also exists in the essential worker. And so for me, you know, one of to say that it's not just about the science or, you know, how can social science help bring insights in that category alone, I think to think about it sort of critically and deeply shows us that the health inequality is not just about extra exposure to risk, it's actually also about not being exposed to risk and being able to capitalize, extract, go about the work of financial industries as if nothing has occurred whatsoever, while still being regarded as an essential worker and having certain, you know, protections and obligations. So, 
The coronavirus syllabus broadens our field of vision, forcing us to see not just the system of science or the system of public health, but rather the whole ecosystem of the pandemic. And in this way, it shows us we need solutions for something much more than an inoculation against an infectious agent. We need healing from the chronic diseases of oppression and exclusion and inequality. And it executes an even more crucial shift. The sources on the syllabus change the locus of expertise. It's, it's flipping the script on the idea of what and who will save us. Look to science and yeah, you will find some hero scientists. Look to social science and you will find heroic communities. One of the takeaways, obviously, for me of, you know, the work, the book that I did on the on the Black Panther Party's health activism, which was precisely this like whole ecosystem approach to thinking about it. But the other thing is we've been having these conversations about the death of expertise and we can't trust the CDC. And I, I think all of those things are true, but they've also always been true for Black communities. And so... You know, we have um, in the social science literature, you know, these conversations about risk society and how risk society is just emerging and is a, a something of the late 20th century. And, you know, like that kind of risk assessment has been the lived condition of Black people always. Right. So, you know, I just want to sort of underscore and put a capital, you know, an exclamation point on communities innovate, because I think one of the kind of extraordinary things about, you know, the black and brown communities in particular are the forms of innovation and also creativity that come out of experiences of disaster that you can hardly believe. So on the coronavirus syllabus, there's some reggaeton, there are some music videos that emerged in the, you know, the months just right after the coronavirus that are, or that are precisely about like communities making sense of, making fun of, finding a place for and the narratives of their lives, like sort of where this new phenomena sits. You know, what did, what does that mean for society? And so part of what I've been, you know, thinking about is sort of what is, how do we define society after this moment? How do social researchers think about what society is, what it's for? And when it comes to finding a comprehensive cure for this pandemic, jointly, collectively, collaboratively responding to the questions, what is society and who is it for? Well, that work is just as important as mapping the genome of the virus. Keep listening. We still have a final word coming up, and you're going to want to hear it. She's an activist on the ground working on a long-term cure for Alabama. Before we close out this episode, we want to tell you about our live System Check event coming up this Saturday, December 19th at 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. That's right, Melissa. Join us for our very first System Check Holiday Book Club brought to you by The Nation, Community Change Action, the Anna Julia Cooper Center, and Tattered Cover Bookstore. We'll be sitting down with authors of some of our favorite books from 2020 and previewing a few terrific titles coming to you in 2021. Think of this as a holiday feast of words. 
And listen, the chefs in this feast of words are serious. We're about to be joined by some truly gifted and brilliant authors, including NPR's Maria Hinojosa discussing her memoir, Once I Was You. We've got historian Scott Ferris talking about his new book, Freedom on Trial, which is about the federal government putting the South Carolina KKK on trial back in 1872, something I didn't even know about. And Ramon Alam is also going to join us to discuss his New York Times bestselling novel, Leave the World Behind. And that's just the start of the lineup. We have got all the people. We have all the people, and it's going to be a great event. And remember, the most important system we have is the system of ideas. So join Melissa and me as we talk with authors who are reshaping the world of ideas for the better. Mark your calendars for Saturday, December 19th at 5 p.m. Eastern. You can watch the System Check Book Club on our System Check Facebook and YouTube channels. And you can find all the details about the book club at thenation.com slash systemcheck, all one word. That's thenation.com slash systemcheck. You know, uh, the old say, the old saying that if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Bottom line is that we got to take care of the people that's taking care of the children. And this idea that we can just consistently look over their needs, which are tied to things like the way the entire system of pay is set up. It is absolutely ridiculous. And, and what we're saying in this season and, and what these black women are saying is that we're no longer going to accept the crumbs in order for us to provide a, a critical service in this state. Because the truth of the matter and what, and what this COVID situation showed us is that child care literally keeps Alabama working. This is Lenise Emanuel. She's executive director of the Alabama Institute for Social Justice. Located in Montgomery, the Institute builds power among working class black women in Alabama, centering their interests as a means to create a state where economic, political and social equity exist for everyone. And realizing this vision for Alabama is no small task. Alabama is the sixth poorest state in the nation. More than 30% of Black folk and a full one-third of Latinos in Alabama live in poverty. And the coronavirus pandemic has hit the state hard, claiming more than 4,000 lives and widening the state's already shocking economic inequality. Times are tough, but Lenise Emanuel and her team are using this moment to organize their community and manifest a new, more just, more equitable Alabama with Black women at the center. This is what system change looks like on the ground. And that is why Lenise Emanuel has this week's final word. When you look at a state where most of the people in this state are essential workers, where most of the people in this state actually are essential workers and have children themselves, you're going to tell me that you all are not going to provide them with child care so they can come and clean up your homes and, and stock your grocery sh shelves. I mean, it is absolutely insane, the kind of blatant disrespect and disregard. So this is what we're saying we need in this moment. We need resources. We need cash. We need enough money to take care of the things that we need in order to do the jobs that we have committed to do. So for one, in terms of child care specifically, we're done with taking this kind of federal supplemental support. We want this to be a public good, point blank and a period with a T, because at this point, 
What we're saying is that black women should not be having to decide if they're going to put food on the table or pay the $20 supplemental fee so that their child can have child care, so that their child's daycare director can't even get paid. It is absolutely insane. So we're done dealing with the system as it currently exists. And that's making a lot of people nervous here in Alabama to the point that when we did our launch a few weeks ago, some of the coalition leaders had the gall to send word to me suggesting, what am I doing? Uh, As if to say, who do I think I am to launch this movement? And so I very articulately said back to them, I don't need your permission to launch a movement. If the coalitions were doing what they were designed to do, there would be no need for us to emerge with the movement. And so what black people need is money. What black people need are resources. What black people need are systems that will allow them to succeed and not just be a part of this sort of almost statewide, I would even say national structure that is deeply flawed from the from the start, including how the market rate system is set up. It's flawed from the beginning because it does not provide enough money to pay for what child care fully cost. And until whether it's child care or whether it's what black women need to run their styling salons or what a black mama needs to be able to work effectively at a McDonald's, black people need to get paid more money. Black people need new systems built so that we can succeed and thrive and not just barely survive because Truth is, most of these systems that are impacting us now were already on life support before the pandemic even hit. The pandemic simply is uh, lifting up all of the inequities that have been going on in this country from day one that are still lingering issues from this country's legacy of slavery. So what we need, we need the coinage and we need it now. And we don't need like some interpretation of the coinage. We need what it costs for us to do what we do effectively. That's a wrap for this episode. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. I'm Dorian Warren. And you've been listening to System Check. System Check is a project of The Nation, hosted by me, Melissa Harris-Perry, and Dorian Warren, and produced by Sophia Steinert-Evoy. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Didi Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Erin O'Mara is president of the nation. And our theme music is by Brooklyn-based artist and producer, Jackery. Support for System Check comes from Omidyar Network, a social change venture that is reimagining how capitalism should work. Learn more about their efforts to recenter our economy around individuals, community, and societal well-being at omidyar.com. Now, the best way to show your love for this show is to subscribe online to the nation's print and digital magazine at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. Join the fight for the once unthinkable progressive ideas that are now mainstream. 80% off for our podcast listeners at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. And as always, if you like what you hear, Please rate, review, and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.